You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection, and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Relax this Sunday with a little moment to yourself and the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Diversion Podcasts. A note, this episode contains descriptions of graphic violence and scenes of genocide. Listener's discretion is advised. Herbert Zucker's The Butcher of Latvia had made a terrible mistake. He'd agreed to be profiled in a major Brazilian magazine, O Cruzeiro. The article called From the Baltics to Brazil, hit newsstands on June 24th, 1950. I wanted to talk to someone who could put this article in context for me. Someone who could explain Zucker's popularity and his adopted home of Brazil. I am Dr. Sara Valenci. I am a visiting assistant professor currently at the Ackerman Center for Holocaust Studies at the University of Texas at Dallas. Dr. Valenti studies the legacy of World War II and the Holocaust in Brazil. In other words, she definitely studies Herbert Zucker's. I asked Dr. Valenti about this magazine article Zucker's allowed himself to be interviewed for. She explained how it completely whitewashes Zucker's Nazi past. The article talks about the family story, how they were poor war refugees. It identifies them as war refugees who all of the sudden in four years are now massively successful. It talks about his beautiful Aryan children, literally, against the backdrop of the famous Sugarloaf Mountains of Rio de Janeiro. And this article really praises him and how quickly it says, you know, a family from Latvia flees from the horrors of war, lands in Rio on Carnival Sunday 
sells a small camera, and rebuilds their future. It was five pages long, and it showed the beautiful life that the Zucker's family had carved out for themselves since leaving Latvia and settling in Rio. The Zuckers, they looked like actors in a 1950s beach movie. One of the things that really resonates, especially when we see the descriptions of the children and the photographs of the children, especially the photograph of the daughter, she has this kind of little bikini top on, and she's this beautiful girl with blonde hair. The family's quite, you know, physically, aesthetically speaking, beautiful, right? There is something that is desirable about their look, their ability to raise themselves up, and their great contributions to the country. And the description is very much this idea of, you know, these are the kinds of people we want in this country. Herbert Zuckers came across as a go-getter who built up a nice business from nothing. He is described as this embodiment of tenacity this very industrious man who is bringing new type of technology for water skiing, which is something that Brazilians had only seen in films at that time. And here he is creating this kind of new recreational sport. But the article went further. It said that Zucker should be an inspiration. Here was a guy who'd faced war and exile, gone through extreme poverty, and yet was succeeding. When all seems lost, the story read, the human species can find within itself the same energies and ability to forget the past and reshape its own destiny. It was such a great story. Who was going to prove it wrong? Well, by this time, years after World War II, there was a small group of Nazi hunters who were on Zucker's trail. They knew he was a monster, but they had to prove it. What if they announced to the world that they'd located the sadistic killer, the butcher of Latvia, and then found out it was the wrong guy? It would set the entire cause back. It would be a blow to Jewish activists everywhere. It would be a disaster. They had to be right. I'm Stephen Talty. And this is Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. So if the first part was to find a Nazi and bring him for a trial, the second part was to find a Nazi and kill him. We must thwart this shameful process. The end of a trail of blood and horror. The end of a man whose name will be written in infamy. Every step brought me closer to Zucker's dock and to the inevitable face-to-face encounter with him. Episode 3, The Man of 100 Identities. I don't know if you're a fan of the 1976 movie Marathon Man, but it's one of my favorites. It's about an escaped Nazi, played by the famous British actor Laurence Olivier, who comes to New York years after the war to retrieve some diamonds. Of course, he's terrified of being discovered and arrested, or even killed, so he goes to great lengths to ensure that he won't be identified. There's a famous scene where Olivier's character tortures the young Dustin Hoffman, who plays the brother of a CIA agent. The Nazi asks him over and over, is it safe? Is it safe? Is it safe? safe? 
It's one of the great thriller scenes. If you haven't watched it, you owe it to yourself to check it out. But Marathon Man also makes an interesting point that relates to our story. Why is this escaped Nazi character so afraid of exposing himself? In part, it's because he's in New York City and he has to go to the neighborhood known as the Diamond District. The Diamond District is where thousands of Jewish merchants work, even today. In the 70s, which is when the movie's set, there would have been hundreds of Holocaust survivors there. That's why Olivier's character is afraid. Because in a time before the internet or Google or social media, the best way of identifying an escaped Nazi was through an eyewitness. Someone who knew him, someone who could recognize him. For Nazi on the run, New York was one of the most dangerous cities in the world because people there would remember his face. And those people knew all the terrible things he'd done. So in the movie, the Nazi gets the diamonds and he's walking down the street. He's feeling good. Then an older woman spots him. She can't believe what she's seeing. This monster actually right in front of her. It's like a memory from a different world. She starts screaming his name. She follows him, shouting and calling for help. And he almost gets caught. But this is the difference between the Diamond District in New York City and Rio, where Zuckers was living at the time. There was a significant Jewish community in Rio, some of whom Zuckers had already met, but very few Holocaust survivors, and almost none from Latvia. From 1937 to 1950, Brazil had a secret policy that denied visas to Jews fleeing Hitler. It turned away 16,000 requests from Jewish refugees who wanted to immigrate there. The reason? Simple anti-Semitism. This secret policy cut down on the numbers who eventually were able to make it to Brazil. That's why the magazine article was such a mistake, because O Cruzeiro was distributed far and wide, not only in Brazil, but across South America. And the right people saw it. Or from Zucker's point of view, the wrong people. But before Zucker's could be placed on a list, and before Mossad and Mio could begin to track him down, Zucker's pursuers had to be sure he was the right guy. Was this really the butcher of Latvia? Maybe there was another Herbert Zuckers who had nothing to do with the Nazis. Maybe he was innocent. That was problem number one. Problem number two had to do with other people. By the early 50s, the world was starting to lose interest in Nazi war criminals. The few survivors and activists who saw the magazine article and thought this might be the butcher contacted the authorities. They wrote the British Foreign Office, who'd prosecuted war criminals from Latvia. The British basically blew them off. The Cold War was underway, and the Brits needed the Germans as allies. They were tired of the whole issue of the Holocaust. They wanted to move on. There were a small group of Jewish activists who didn't want to move on. They couldn't forget what they'd seen during the war. They dedicated their lives to finding people like the Butcher. These men and women were scattered around the globe, New York, Vienna, Tel Aviv. A few of them were famous. Simon Wiesenthal, the legendary Nazi hunter, was the most famous. But many were anonymous. Beginning in the mid-1940s, they spent their time writing letters to survivors, poring over archives, searching for clues. One committee of these Nazi hunters tried to get the Russians interested in the butcher. After all, Russia had taken over Latvia after the war, 
surely they would do something. But the Russians said that the nation of Latvia no longer existed, so they couldn't prosecute anyone who'd committed crimes there. They washed their hands of the whole deal. So even if the Nazi hunters proved this guy in Brazil was the butcher, so what? Who was going to do something about it? The hunters decided to cross that bridge when they got to it. First, they had to ID Zuckers, confirm he was the butcher. Then they would find someone to do something about it. But again, no Google, no camera phones. How do you confirm this is the guy? So this is how they did it. Step one, they had to get photos of Herbert Zuckers before the war. That was the starting point. But how? A young man named Joseph Schneider went to the Central Library in Riga, the capital of Latvia. We don't know a lot about Schneider. He may have been part of a Nazi hunter network, or he may have been asked to do a favor for a friend. In any case, he went to the aviation section and started going through the newspaper archives. This was Herbert Zucker's Achilles heel. Most Nazis had been anonymous before the war, but Zuckers had been a publicity hound. He loved the attention. So the young researcher started coming across articles on this brilliant young aviator. And along with the articles were photos. Here's Herbert Zuckers in a leather coat. Here's one of him in profile, smiling, unsmiling, in a plane, outside a plane. There were tons of pictures. Great, but one problem. There were no Xerox machines, not only in the Regal Library, but anywhere. They weren't on the market yet. And the photos had to be copied so they could be compared to ones of the guy in Rio. Schneider knew this. He came prepared. In his hand, he held a small razor blade. And when the librarian wasn't looking, he bent down and started cutting. First one article, then the next. He chose the ones with the clearest photos. And when he was done, he brought the bound newspapers back to the desk. Then he walked out. In his pocket was the crucial evidence. Okay, step one was a success. They had a baseline, photos of the man they knew to be Herbert Zuckers. Now they needed pictures of the guy in Rio. If the two matched, they had their man. This part was a little harder. The Nazi hunters wrote their contacts in Brazil. A young man named Victor, that's all we know about him, his first name, agreed to try to get a current photo of Zuckers. He went to the dock where the man from the magazine article was working. He asked the guy, who was wearing an old captain's hat, if he could take him and his friend on a boat tour of the lake. The man agreed. So Victor and his friend and this man, who was maybe Herbert Zuckers, got into the boat. Victor had brought along a camera, naturally, and he started taking shots of the scenery. Water skiers, sailors, he clicked whenever he saw something interesting. And then he turned and tried to get a shot of the mystery man in the captain's hat. But no, the guy was jumpy. Whenever Victor pointed the camera in his direction, he would duck down, or turn his head, or look away. Victor could not believe it. He was taking all these photos, and he hadn't gotten a single decent shot of the guy. He always tried to hide his face, he later said. Finally, Victor took a few last shots as the boat returned to the dock. Once he'd left the marina, Victor brought the rolls of film to be developed, and he waited. When the photos were ready, he picked them up, and they were pretty much as he thought, disappointing. But he sent them off to the Nazi hunters anyway. He said if they weren't good enough, he'd go back to the dock, this time with a movie camera. 
The Nazi hunters got the photos. They sorted through them and found one they thought might work. It showed Zuckers in profile as he was ducking down to avoid the camera. Not ideal, but worth a shot. The team took Victor's photo and put it next to one from the Regal Library, and they compared. Within a few minutes, they had an answer. The man in the captain's hat and the Latvian Lindbergh were the same man. They'd found the butcher of Latvia. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If you're this far into the story, we're assuming you're enjoying Hunting the Butcher. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, would you be able to take a minute to give the show a rating and a review? Just find the show's page on Apple Podcasts, scroll down to the section called Ratings and Reviews, and tap one of those purple stars to give it a rating. Then tap the little purple link that says Write a Review, and leave a few words about what you think of Hunting the Butcher. It really helps get the word out and let other listeners know about the podcast. Much appreciated. Now on with the show. An organization called the World Jewish Congress announced that the Butcher of Latvia had been found and was living in Brazil. And despite the growing indifference toward the hunt for Nazis, it had an effect. There were headlines in Brazilian newspapers. Zucker's business was ruined. He had to move several times to avoid angry protesters. Eventually, he ended up in the city of Sao Paulo, running another small boat rental business. This was not what Zuckers had imagined for himself. His dreams of building a glorious new life in Brazil, they'd been shattered. The Jews had seen to that. He was bitter, paranoid, and lonely. But he was still free. The efforts of the Nazi hunters had failed. 
They tried to get governments around the world to pay attention. They'd lobby Brazil to deport him. They'd asked America and Great Britain to get involved. Nothing had worked. So in the mid-60s, Zuckers was holding his own. He still hoped for a grand third act to his life. He believed in himself. He just had to convince the world that he'd been misunderstood in order to get all the fame and the money back. That was the dream. We found some incredible tapes from a man named Jack Anderson. Anderson was a legendary and controversial investigative reporter who died in 2005. Anderson's papers reside at George Washington University, and his personal archive of recordings have just recently been unsealed. This will be the first time anyone has heard these tapes, and they're striking. I'm an American newspaper man that just was interested in talking to some of these uh, uh, Nazis and hearing their side of the story. Anderson traveled to Brazil in 1960 to track down Nazi fugitives for an article he eventually published in Parade magazine. And that was his cover. It just occurred to me that if they found Eichmann, there are probably other war criminals down there in hiding. In fact, I knew there were other war criminals, and I thought it might even be possible to find a few, and I thought it would be a great story for Parade. So I told Parade I was going to go down and look for him. It sounds unbelievable to just hop on a plane and go interview Nazis, but Anderson was good at his job, and he met a crucial contact at the airport immediately upon his arrival. I felt that it was a stroke of luck, and if I do say so myself, good reporting, that I got him in a hurry. I just sold him on the idea that I was a friendly newspaper man who would like to talk to some of them. He got talking. He explained how they uh, operated. Mario, as I remember, was his name. His first name, he'd taken, it wasn't his real name, he'd taken on a, a Brazilian name. Uh, had been a major in the SS and uh, was living a different life now. As an airline employee, this lower-level management guy. Anderson wanted a big exclusive, and he came prepared. Before his trip, he contacted Simon Wiesenthal, and Wiesenthal sent him reams of research on all the Nazi fugitives he thought might be living there. But Anderson was focused, and he made a list of the most infamous Nazis still at large. He wanted to find the next Eichmann. And this man he was sitting with, Mario, seemed to know them all. Told me about Mengele. He knew all about Mengele. But he said uh, after the kidnapping, Mengele was in Buenos Aires, in Argentina, knew right where he was. Said that he had fled, though, after the Eichmann kidnapping. I was after the big ones. And and he wasn't very helpful on any of the big ones. They were either inaccessible or they had disappeared after the Eichmann had scared them all into hiding. He, he said that they had a, a ring of, uh, was a rather loose association of kind of co-conspirators, people who were in the same boat and therefore helped one another. And, and uh, then he told me about, uh, he said they had uh, hideouts deep in Brazil where they would go when they felt threatened, when they were on the run. Anderson was hitting a wall. After the very high-profile kidnapping and trial of Eichmann, ex-Nazis were more paranoid than ever. After all, they were in hiding. It made sense that they wouldn't want to talk to a quote-unquote American newspaper man. 
no matter how friendly he claimed to be. But there was this one Nazi Mario brought up who sounded different from the rest. This Nazi wasn't on Anderson's radar, and his name didn't even ring a bell. That led him to tell me about Zuckers who had uh, three seaplanes uh, on a lake outside of Sao Paulo. He said he ran a sightseeing business there. But he said he's very useful to us because he can fly our people into the interior. So Zuckers was a guy who flew, who was a key guy in their operation. And if they need a quick, if somebody needed a fast getaway into the interior of Brazil, he would fly them in his seaplane. And apparently there were a series of lakes that he knew where to land on. He said Zuckers was still operating because Zuckers was a lesser war criminal, although much of a war criminal. Anderson made a mental note of the unusual name and raced back to his hotel to comb through the research Wiesenthal had given him. So I looked through these files, and happily I had a file on him. So I went over his file and decided he was a pretty bad son of a bitch. The uh, file, I remember, described how he, on one occasion, had locked Jews in a synagogue and then set it on fire. He just burned them alive in a synagogue. They told about Jews leaving in these big, fat, blue buses for the forest, and then they, the buses came back empty, so the assumption was that he was slaughtering them. And he was described in some of the affidavits. I saw three or four descriptions of him, and they were all just consistent. They described him as a big, stocky fellow who always wore a leather jacket and always carried his pistol in his back pocket. It was a curious place to carry a pistol. And anyhow, he was brutal. They said that he would, one of his favorite pastimes was bursting in on Jews who had beautiful daughters, 12 and 1 in the morning, and, and hauling the daughters off uh, for his own pleasure and that kind of stuff. He was really an ugly, vicious, mean son of a bitch. And so I said, Mario, can you get through to him? Yes, he said he could. I said, uh, would you arrange for me to go see him, tell him that I'm I just want to talk to him about uh, his story, the harassment that he's under and that sort of made it sound as friendly as I could. Got the word back that he had agreed to see me. Later, I'll tell you about what Anderson encountered when he went to meet with Zuckers. But meanwhile, Israel was focused on South America too and the Nazi fugitives hiding out there. The Israeli government kept a list of important Nazi criminals who'd escaped justice. We don't know how many people were on it, but we do know a few of the more famous names. Adolf Eichmann, one of the main architects of the Holocaust. The Mossad captured him in 1960. He was put on trial and then executed two years later. Dr. Joseph Mengele, known as the Angel of Death, who'd murdered Jewish children at Auschwitz and had conducted ghastly experiments on Jewish prisoners, was high up on the list. And after the article appeared in the Brazilian magazine, Zuckers had made it too. In the early 1960s, the Israelis became concerned about a possible amnesty for Nazis. Remember, the German government was seriously considering giving a free pass to Nazi murderers who hadn't been indicted yet. The Israelis wanted to stop this from happening at all costs and they had decided to go after a Nazi. A few months later, our Mossad agent, Mio, was in Paris, 
getting ready to assume the role of a lifetime. He'd left the apartment after his meeting with his boss, convinced that the mission was justified. He had his target. Now he had to prepare to meet him, to befriend him. It was kind of a seduction. Mio had played his part before in missions that made history. He was in Argentina for the most famous Mossad operation of all, the 1960 kidnapping of Adolf Eichmann, one of the senior organizers of the Nazi Holocaust. Mio had flown to South America, rented the cars the team used during the surveillance and the kidnapping. He'd actually guarded the Nazi in the apartment that Mossad used before bundling Eichmann out of Argentina and back to Israel. He'd studied Eichmann closely. You have no idea what a small, nervous man he was. How he signed the document agreeing to be tried in Israel and how he behaved. This man who sent millions to their death. So Mio had played a supporting role when it came to Eichmann. But now he faced a much more confident, tough-minded man. One who wouldn't go so quietly. He had to plan the mission himself without explicit directions from Mossad headquarters. And for that, Mio had to get inside the butcher's head, find out what he wanted, discover his weak points. It was the kind of an operation built for someone like Mio. If you watch James Bond or other spy movies, you'll find a lot of uh, cliches. And the spy agent looks very, very smart, very tall, beautiful. But in, in the real life, some agents are very far away from this. Some of them look like uh, gray people or people behind the desk. And uh, my dad was even more than this. He was a mastermind. That's Avner Avraham, the ex-Mossad agent who studied the Zucker's operation. He's talking about Mio's genius at playing roles. Like any good actor... Mio's first thoughts were about looking the part. After leaving the apartment in Paris, he set out to become a different person. What Mio needed was a cover identity. He wasn't going to South America in heavy disguise. Not exactly. He already looked a lot like the man he would be playing, the Austrian businessman Anton Kunzle. He didn't need to physically transform himself. But you have to understand that Mio wasn't just another operative. He truly saw it to become the person he was portraying. My uncompromising perfectionism, even at the cost of my own health, is part of my nature. When creating a cover story, I always paid close attention to all the small details and never looked for shortcuts. I had seen too many foul-ups in my life that were the result of half-hearted preparations Due to negligence or laziness, I could not allow that. Mio's nickname within Mossad was the man of a hundred identities. He'd become these people, and then, when the mission was over, leave them behind. But when he was inside the cover, it had to feel real to him. Even small changes meant a lot. So three days after the meeting in Paris, Mio took a train to Rotterdam, a port city in Holland. He didn't want to set up his cover in Paris. It was too close to home, and he might run into someone he knew. So he chose Rotterdam for its banks and hotels that did business with people from all over Europe. Important people. That's what he was aiming for. Anton Kunzle was going to be a guy with a lot of money and prestige. Someone solid, dependable. Someone people paid attention to and believed in. 
The combination of my advanced boldness, round stomach, and uh, calm appearance gave every character I had adopted in past operations the semblance of uh, trustworthiness. In the breast pocket of Mio's suit was an Austrian passport. It was a fake, of course. Mossad had an entire department in Tel Aviv that produced fake passports, birth certificates, and other important documents. It's been called the Passport Factory, and they had several ways of getting high-quality documents. They would ask Jews who'd spend time in foreign countries to donate their passports so duplicates could be made. They've also been accused of stealing blank passports, then filling in the names of their agents' cover identities. 50 blank passports once disappeared from a safe in the Canadian Embassy in Vienna. Mossad was suspected. A year later, one of the Canadian documents was found in Cyprus. It had been left behind by a Mossad operative after a bomb had exploded underneath the bed of a Palestinian guerrilla leader. It's been reported that the agency keeps the fake passports in a vault in their headquarters, sorted by country. The documents were extremely high quality. Mossad even produced its own paper and ink. Mio's passport identified him as Anton Kunzla, a man who didn't exist. The mission had a timetable. There was a lot to do. Mio would only have 10 hours in Rotterdam, so he had to move fast. When he got to the city, he checked into the Rin Hotel, a luxury dress that would give him instant credibility as a rich real estate developer, which was supposed to be Kunza's business. Mio then walked to the post office, gave the hotel as his address, and opened a P.O. box. That P.O. box now became Anton Kunzla's address in Rotterdam. Mio headed out of the post office and found a branch of the Amro Bank. He told the bank clerk he wanted to open an account. When the clerk asked for his address, he gave the P.O. box and pulled out $3,000 for the initial deposit. He was careful not to use his native German in talking with the guy because the Germans had occupied Rotterdam during the war and there might still be lingering bitterness. Mio, he considered everything. He still needed a visa for Brazil. He asked the hotel doorman what he'd need and the guy sent a bellhop to get all the forms. Mio slipped him what he called a fat tip and the deal was done. The doorman even called a local doctor for a physical, which was one of the requirements for traveling to Brazil. Now Mio needed a visa photo. He wanted to slightly change his appearance. If the operation was successful, there would be a good chance that Interpol would look for him. His face would be on wanted posters from Paris to Buenos Aires. He was already growing a mustache, but that wasn't enough. He found an optician shop near his hotel and picked out a pair of heavy frames. The optician gave him an exam, and Mio, who had perfect eyesight, intentionally misread the bottom line of letters. He got the prescription. Later, he realized that the lenses would actually damage his vision. But for Mio, it was a price you had to pay. I knew Zuckers was mistrustful and fearful of traps. And the possibility existed, remote as it might have been, that he would uh, find some excuse to check my glasses. (laughs) I might have sacrificed the quality of my eyesight for the sake of settling the account with the despicable murderer, but I don't regret it for one second. 
As Mia went to his different appointments, he picked up pocket matter, bus tickets, a laundry receipt, as well as toothpaste and other items with the price tag still on. He could leave this stuff in his luggage when he went to Brazil. If Zuckers became suspicious and went through his things, he'd see that his new friend really was who he said he was. He had to out-paranoid Zuckers to be even more neurotic and fearful than he was. Because Mio was meeting the butcher alone. Uh, the operation um, that the Mossad uh, found and killed Zuckers was very rare. Because usually, in a normal operation, you have a backup team, you have a, a, a way to escape, to defend yourself. Uh, you have a gun or, or weapons or, or other kind of weapons. Not this time. Mio's only real weapon was his mind, his ability to outwit his target. It made his cover extremely important. After finishing up in Rotterdam, Mio headed to Zurich. There, he set up a bank account and arranged for several letters of credit. He bought a lightweight black suit, the kind that businessmen wore in Brazil. He picked up some stationery, which he had engraved with his fake name. He added some business cards and traveler's checks. Then, it was back to Paris. He met again with the mission commander, Yosef Yariv, and worked out exactly how they would communicate during the operation. This was 1964, And of course, there was no email or texting. Even international phone calls were expensive and hard to make. So instead, they would use fake messages sent by airmail. And in them, Mio and Mossad would write the real messages in invisible ink. If Zuckers got a look at them, they would appear to be just simple business letters. When the meeting was over, Mio booked a flight to Brazil for September 11th, 1964. He was ready to meet the butcher. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. 
The Seven from The Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Hi, this is Stephen Talty, host of Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher. The folks that helped me bring you this show, Diversion Podcasts, have just launched another podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Backstaged, The Devil in Metal, a deep dive into the history of metal music, filled with never-before-heard interviews and stories from some of the biggest names in music, including Black Sabbath, Judas Priest, Van Halen, and many others. It's outrageous, raw, and surprising at times. Backstaged, The Devil in Metal is out now. Follow the show on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. His first stop was Rio. The flight to Brazil was 12 hours long, He was exhausted when he arrived. He checked into the Hotel California, that was the name, believe it or not, and went up to the restaurant. From his seat, he could see Copacabana Beach laid out beneath him. He took in the view, knowing it would be the last time, for a long time, he would be able to fully relax. It was a fairly wide strip of golden sand, bordering blue waters on one side, and uh, strewn with uh, myriad colorful dots that were, in fact, beautiful sun-tanned women clad in skimpy bathing suits. The hundreds of kites in various colors and shapes, such as eagles, dragons, and butterflies that uh, soared in the pleasant sea breeze, completed the picture of a free and easy life without a care in the world. He thought about how some people could be living such pleasant lives, while he was 20 stories up, planning an assassination. When he finished his dinner, he sent a telegram to Mossad. Arrived safely. Love to everyone. Then, that Monday, he got to work. He went to the tourist ministry and told the officials there he wanted to invest in Brazil. He talked his way into the minister's office and got his business card. He was building his local cover. Finally, he flew to Sao Paulo, where the butcher was now living. He noted that the airport was named after Santos Dumont, a famous pilot who had a medal named in his honor. The Dumont Medal was awarded every year to the world's greatest aviators. Zuckers had won it in the 30s. It was a reminder for Mio of who the butcher had been before the war came. Mio checked into an expensive hotel in Sao Paulo. For the next few days, he went around the city working on his identity. He rented a Volkswagen Beetle to get him around. He visited the local branch of the Swiss bank where he'd opened an account, left his business card, and made sure the manager remembered him just in case Zuckers stopped in. (music) 
Then he dropped by the headquarters of a company that specialized in marinas. Zuckers had his little boat business in a marina in the Interlagos neighborhood. Mio needed an excuse to visit it. He quickly talked his way into a meeting with the company's director. When he was in character, Mio had this confidence that he lacked at other times. In real life, he was often shy, introverted. In Israel, he was a bit of an outsider. His German accent marked him out as a foreigner, as opposed to many of the other Mossad agents, who were Sabras, native-born Israelis. But when Mio slipped into a new identity, he was transformed. He was sociable, chatty, even commanding. He was more comfortable giving orders. It's as if the missions gave Mio permission to be the person he always wanted to be. At the end of the meeting, Mio got the director to write a letter, introducing him to the guy who ran the yacht club in Interlagos. Now, he had a reason to go there. This is the drudge work of espionage, the kind of thing you rarely see in movies or spy novels. Establishing cover, making contacts, scouting the territory. It seemed boring, and in a way it was. James Bond would never have bothered. But in the real world of espionage, it could save your life. I was pleased with my achievements. Thanks to the combination of professional experience and a little luck, I had managed in just four days to not only further establish my cover story and add concrete details to the character Anton Kunzler, but also to get uh, elegantly closer to the target without leaving any incriminating traces behind. Every step brought me closer to Zucra's dock and to the inevitable face-to-face encounter with him. Mio was expected to meet an old man. The butcher was 64, after all, past his prime. Mio thought this would be a battle of wills, where the biggest danger would be getting found out. If that happened, the operation would be over and the amnesty for Nazi criminals the German government was planning would most likely go into effect. It would be a painful blow to Jews all over the world. Mio knew the mission was risky, but he never imagined it would be physically dangerous. It wasn't like the butcher was still out to kill Jews. But Mio was wrong about that. And he also didn't know that the butcher had vowed never to be taken alive. Good Assassins, Hunting the Butcher is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by Stephen Tolte. Produced and directed by Scott Waxman and Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Story editing by Jacob Bronstein with editorial direction from Scott Waxman and Mangesh Hatikadur. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. With the voices of... Nick Afka Thomas, Omri Angle, Andrew Polk, Mindy Escobar Leantz, Steve Routman, and Stefan Rudnitsky. Theme music by Tyler Cash. Archival research by Adam Shapiro. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA.
From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. 